Hello everyone, this is Sarah from Better Babies and we are super lucky to have yet another guest star on the podcast and today we've got Dr. Anand Patel who's a specialist in sexual function, men's health, GP and educator, it's quite a mouthful, awesome <laughs> credentials. Um, obviously one of the things we talk about a lot at Better Babies is the fact that on the men's side of things it's becoming more of an issue uh, when it comes to fertility with sperm counts being dropping very dramatically over the last 40 years or so and issues more broadly with hormonal imbalance which also affect men too so we're super lucky to be joined by Dr Anand just to run a few few of these key topics so welcome thank you so much for having me sir well my pleasure so let's kick off um obviously I mentioned hormonal imbalance Mm. um you know it's typically seen for some reason as a woman's thing but it seems to be something that's on the rise more broadly so do you think it's fair to say that we are or you are seeing more issues with hormonal imbalance than maybe you've seen in the past i think people are generally more aware of their bodies these days and um, there's so much more accessibility to information on the internet um, for example about your health um, there are huge amounts of social media posts about people looking after themselves the fitness has become such an important thing um, and it used to be that young people would not be interested necessarily in their health it would be about getting drunk or maybe taking drugs and these days you've got pictures of all of these influencers or famous people in the gym all the time and you know we now have a local gym which is full of sort of 15 and 16 year olds and I never would have seen that you know 10 years ago for example so it's fascinating to watch the change in the dynamic that we're seeing and so a lot of that general view about health is permeating gently into the male arena mm. but still men aren't really taking care of their health overall um, I and mean, if we sort of look at a few numbers overall um, there's still for example a nine-year life expectancy difference between men in Chelsea and men in Sunderland whoa no way yeah and if we're looking at between men and women the life expectancy gap is increasing and by 2030 overall across the world we're looking at a life expectancy gap of at least 10 years and why is that? In general, men either present later with their illnesses. So, you know, for example, they may have something going on, but they'll ignore it, either because it's unmanly. So, you know, obviously I am a sexual function specialist, so I see a lot of men with erectile dysfunction, um, and they don't necessarily want to talk about that. And, it, <laughs> and if they're not, and they don't tend to talk about their friends particularly about that. I mean, women tend to be a lot better, and this is generalisation, but women tend to be better at talking to their friends and family about a health problem and about seeking out care with a doctor. I certainly see more female patients than I do men, and if I see women patients, I'm generally seeing them about a very broad remit of issues. I'm not just seeing them, for example, about a musculoskeletal injury. It's not that they hurt their knee or their shoulder which limits something they physically can't do I'm actually seeing people about their mood I'm seeing women about um, other health issues that about their fertility particularly um, so the fact that I see men either for very specific things or later is potentially an issue um, the fact that we're seeing more hormone imbalance in terms of well personally I'll see a lot more people with a low testosterone or with diabetes for example both very significant hormonal conditions um, is partly because of awareness I think more people are aware of both of these things more people have family members perhaps with diabetes um, because it's on the rise um, so they may come in and see us about that they might come in because they want to have a health check because health checks have seems to become much more popular and in vogue um, certainly there's a sort of over 40s health check that the NHS offers um, so we've got lots of people now coming in um, via that route, which is brilliant for us because we're picking up all these people before they actually get unwell. Yeah, that's the key really, is prevention. Now, 
before we kind of dig into a few of the points you mentioned, you said that um, there's a difference as much as nine years between men living in Chelsea and men living in Sunderland. Yeah. Why is there that geographic difference? So there seems to be, I, I mean, I think if we look at deprivation overall, I imagine that we can probably safely say Chelsea's not particularly deprived. Um, there are areas of Sunderland that do bring it significantly into the deprived zone. Um, the north of the country has a significantly higher de- deprivation factor than the, the, the south of the country. Um, obviously, London has its own sort of unique microcosm. It's a bit of a bubble, whereas there are some huge pockets of deprivation and some huge pockets of you know, wealth. Um, and that does actually make a difference in terms of either the way people look after themselves, um, because the new wealthy seems to be being active and slim as opposed to being the old sort of CEO view of a bloated banker yeah. um, in, a, in, a, in a shirt stretched too tight. It's now a man that, that takes care of himself, wears an Ura ring, um, has, an, <laughs> has an Apple watch, you know, is, is, may have a personal trainer. So if that group of men are looking after themselves more and they are being um, often pushed to do so, um, or mentioned to do so either by social media or by their partner, that is a very positive thing in terms of them looking after themselves, so better diets, um, more exercise, uh, earlier access to healthcare than, for example, more deprived areas, which will not have that. Um, so you think wellness and awareness of wellness is, at the moment, more connected with affluence? I think so at the moment, and, and certainly educational level feeds into that. Um, higher educational groups tend to have better health, health in general. Um, now, obviously, these are generalisations, but y- yes, that's the case um, in, in lots of spheres. So we are trying to make sure that there's an educational element to our healthcare and that it's you know, not just for those that can access it and do access it readily. It's going, well, OK, who is not accessing it? You know, um, is it because of language issues? I mean, I, I work in Stockwell sometimes and it's known as Little Portugal. You know, there's a huge Portuguese community. Um, now, 10 or 15 years ago in our practice, we used to have a full-time Portuguese translator and a full-time Spanish translator. because so we also had a lot of patients from Spain and from Central America. Now, 10 years later, language skills have improved hugely. Um, also, their children have grown up and now are interpreting for them. And I appreciate that's not best practice necessarily, having your child interpret for you. However, it does mean that we're more connected to that community. Our leaflets are in Portuguese, for example, and in Spanish, which does mean that people are accessing their healthcare. But we do know that Portuguese patients are far less likely to have their cervical smears. They're also far less likely to have um, a bowel screening. So these groups that are not accessing healthcare, how do we improve that to bring up levels? And it's not just about being Portuguese or being Eritrean or whatever nationality or whatever language issue there is. There's also a deprivation and education issue. And for example, if you're an English speaker but are deprived, um, that means you are less likely to access healthcare. So that's really interesting. So you're tying a lot of this to awareness. So I guess one of the things that you're saying is that there is more kind of hormonal issues, but that's maybe because more people are aware of it rather than because there is more of it? Or how how do you look at that? Do you think that modern life, I'll rephrase it, do you think that modern life is giving rise to more hormonal imbalance? Or do you just think we're seeing more of it because people are greater or, or more aware? Potentially both. Yeah. And that, the problem with my answers, and I'm afraid they may sound a little bit cagey and I'm not giving you a proper answer. I'm not trying to be a politician about anything. <laughs> I'm just genuine. Because there are um, studies 
these studies give us an idea of direction of travel. They don't necessarily say that A equals B. You know, it, that's not the case. We don't necessarily have connection showing that X leads to Y directly. There may be a, conf a confounding variable, as we call it. Basically, there's a, an alleyway that one goes down and you get completely lost. So you can't go in, 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 a, in a straight line from one to another. But basically what you're saying is there is more of it and maybe there's a couple of reasons why. Absolutely. Okay. And you also talked about um, more imbalance. You talked about diabetes, but you also talked about testosterone. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously something that you can quite clearly link back to infertility and issues around sperm. So are you, what do you believe when you sit back and look at the kind of practice and the practice you have and the people you see, what do you think are the main drivers behind that? So maybe apart from awareness. So people are coming to you because they've got these issues and they want to seek kind of help more proactively. But aside from that, what do you think is causing these issues particularly with testosterone? I think more people have become aware and the people that see me, I mean I work on Harley Street so people who see me are likely to be affluent um, and they're likely to have done their reading, um, you know they've gone online, they've talked to, um, they will have talked to friends and when you're talking about testosterone that seems less shameful than actually talking about the effects of that testosterone. So I might say, I've got a testosterone problem potentially, but what you might read between the lines is, do I have erectile dysfunction? Do I have um, uh, libido issues that I'm not just having that sexual desire I used to be? Am I feeling a bit more weak in the gym? Um, is my focus going you know, earlier than you might expect it? You know, we all are aware that there are changes that occur with aging. You know, we're not expecting you know, um, a 90-year-old necessarily to run the marathon. However, there are some that can, but they will be considered outliers. However, at 40 or 50, if you are finding you have these um, situations, particularly, for example, erectile dysfunction, I would really like men to come and talk to us about this um, wherever you go to. You know, go to your GP. Um, you don't have to come to Harley Street to, to see someone for that. But men would less likely to do so. More so these days. I mean, I'm certainly, I mean, I've been a GP now for 10 years. And the number of people seeing me 10 years ago compared to coming in now and happily talking about it as their first thing, not the entry point thing that lots of people have. Let me just work out if he's not a weirdo, if I can feel like can safely talk to him and then you get your hand to the door and go oh by the way can we talk about my erection problems um, but that sort of doorway has opened and I think people are very much more talking to us about it so a lot of it will be as you said before about you know is it that there's more of it or is it that we just uh, it's more visible to us because people are coming in I think a lot of it is the latter mm -hmm. I mean I recognize that there's been a lot in, um, written about that sperm counts are falling what the effects of these phyto and xenoestrogens that are out there I don't entirely know. Um, I mean, I did a bit something for the BBC on soy and its effects on fertility and whether there is some, and there is some evidence potentially suggesting that. However, um, it's relatively small margins and it tends to be within particular subgroups. So people who are already under fertile or subfertile tend to respond worse to higher levels of soy. However, if you have got normal fertility and you take soy, it probably doesn't make any real difference. So it's about thinking about what, what relevant subgroup are you and what are the factors that we need to change. And everything is much more complicated than a single thing. So when you come to me thinking you have a low testosterone, that opens up a huge amount of conversation for me because we're talking about low testosterone. So say we do a blood test and you actually do have a low testosterone. For me, it's like, well, okay, where does that come from? Is it because of your body size? Because if you have a larger um, waist circumference, you are more likely to have a low testosterone. And any testosterone you have is turned into estrogen peripherally within the fat. So it's like a double whammy and a vicious circle. Then if you're bigger, you're less likely to exercise, which means if you don't do resistance exercise, and that's um, the weights 
uh, you actually are like, more likely to drop your testosterone. Marathon runners drop their testosterone, so high degrees of um, cardiovascular exercise are less good for your testosterone than, for example, doing maybe 20 or 30 minutes of weights. And we're not talking weights to the level of you're going to turn into Schwarzenegger. I'm talking about weights to the level where you know you might be carrying five or ten kilos and maybe doing some squats with it, even bodyweight exercises. But we're not talking about the high intensity training stuff where you're increasing the heart rate significantly, where it's only cardiovascular. Yeah, that's uh, an issue for women as well. I mean, I myself had an issue where I was doing far too much hip training my cortisol levels were through the roof so obviously if you try and get pregnant when your body's in stress mode it's very difficult so it's interesting to see that that applies to men as well now taking a step back what are some of the signs and symptoms if you're a guy and you're listening to this um, and you're concerned that your testosterone level might not be where it should what are some of the main symptoms you've obviously touched on some of them but perhaps you can give, just give us a quick summary sure. of the things to watch out for it's really variable and that's slightly problematic so for example you can have a loss of concentration so and particularly men notice that at work they, they were doing really well and then all of a sudden why is it that i can't focus on my task why is it that my performance seems to be going down when nothing else seems to have changed am i sleepy um, so daytime sleepiness um, can be a problem in people who've got um, low testosterone, uh, low libido, um, erectile problems. Uh, do you have a loss of body muscle mass or are you struggling to put muscle on at the gym? Do you find, I mean, you know, people who've got osteoporosis because on men who have an easy fracture, that's very unusual in men. Um, particularly sort of middle-aged men. So I would want to know what your testosterone is because that improves bone strength and bone density. Um, the, I mean, because there are so many different factors in different parts of the body testosterone affect, for example, it can affect your skin, it can affect your um, having hot flushes. There are a whole harem of, of different um, symptoms you can have and they also are present in lots of other illnesses. So my job is to try and work out what is the most likely cause of your symptoms because it's not always testosterone. And that's the thing I really want to emphasise is that testosterone um, uh, deficiency with symptoms is present in somewhere between 6 and 40% of men 40 to 70 years old. Now, that's really unfortunately unhelpful in terms of numbers, because why can't I give you a more precise um, definition of that? It's just because different, different um, samples give me different results. You know, in some samples, they're saying 6% of men, um, 30 to 70, have uh, symptomatic testosterone deficiency. In others, they're saying up to 40%. So you know, it, it's somewhere within that, bu that bundle of numbers. I know, and, 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 I, and I find it frustrating. I'd like to be able to give you a soundbite number, and that's what it gives you. But actually, that's just not fair, because that's not what, what the reality is. So I need to work out, is, is it one, that you have a low testosterone? Two, is that the cause of your symptoms? Because often I have people who have been really struggling with depression and anxiety. And again, you can get that with um, testosterone deficiency, but it doesn't tend to be quite the same um, from the people that we've been presenting. It doesn't classically present like depression. Uh, and often the, these patients have had um, antidepressant treatments in the past, which haven't really worked. And you think, well, why isn't it working? If you test a bit further sometimes, it can be that if you replace their testosterone, if they genuinely have a low testosterone, then the antidepressants have a much better effect. Very if, interesting. Yeah, and there's been a recent trial showing some positive benefit in depression with testosterone. That's not going to be on any NHS or probably private um, prescription place anytime soon, but there was um, one recent uh, sample saying that, a recent paper. Well, I guess that's part of the thing is that there's such a gap, isn't there, between new research coming out and actually what happens in clinical practice. Exactly. I mean, 
most of the medical professionals I speak to say it's like 10 to 15 years gap in many cases. So, you know, it's always interesting to be aware, even though you can't necessarily hang your hat on it. And it's certainly interesting to read about things like this. Now, when we think about the drivers behind this, you mentioned a couple of them. So you talked about weight. And obviously, one can argue that becoming bigger is part of our modern society. And that is something that despite the fact we have all this awareness on health and despite the fact that we are generally more conscious of our health it does seem that people are getting bigger um, and you talked about diabetes as well so one of the things we talked about is the kind of estrogenization of the modern world and of yep. course as you say um, you know if you are bigger then that can contribute it so can you dig into a little bit more detail of the significance of weight and what that can do to your hormones and specifically I guess with testosterone but then also with diabetes which is becoming so much more of an issue and how that can affect your fertility. Absolutely I mean in the next few years diabetes is probably going to cost the UK 30 billion per year just for treatment alone um, and in its side effects um, as a result of the condition so it's a really big issue. Um, if we just talk about really generally if you look down and you're a man and you can't see your penis past your gut you have a five times increased risk of type 2 diabetes, you have a three times higher risk of colon cancer, and you have a higher rate of blood pressure issues, erectile dysfunction, and lower urinary tract symptoms, so basically peeing problems. So this is very significant. If your, if your BMI, so your body mass index, is uh, which is sometimes a crude measure, but let's go with that, if it's over 30, you have a higher risk of 22 different cancers. So this is really significant for us. Uh, I mean, generally the way to measure your waist is to get a sort of rigid um, uh, sort of tailor's tape, wrap it around your middle, halfway between um, the crest of your, of your, of your pelvis um, and the lowest, lowest rib you've got, and measure what your waist is. If your waist is over 102, that's too big. Okay, but it also depends, culture, so it depends racially. So for example, if you're Caucasian, it's over 102 generally. If it's over um, 94, so hang on, I'm going to check that I get this right. <laughs> I right. want to give your correct information. This is correct information. Amazing, we like accuracy here. Okay, so abdominal obesity exists if you are European over 94 centimetres, which actually is relatively small you know, for now. I mean, previously, I, mean, I, I seem to remember going to charity shops and getting all these 70s clothes and you the low sugar um, they were absolutely tiny, and yeah. I was like, "How on earth does anyone fit in any of these clothes?" Mm. But these days, you know, a median now used to be, you know, a large or extra large mm. um, a few years ago. So we are getting bigger as a society. So if you are sort of European or Eastern Mediterranean or Middle Eastern, sort of above ninety four, but particularly above one hundred and two, is a real problem. However, if you are Asian, um, or J Chinese, or Japanese, it's over ninety. It becomes a problem, and you know I've got a waist circumference of 102. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm trying to lose it now. I've had a, some sort of quinoa lunch, <laughs> which I was horrifiedly bored with. Um, but the idea is, I recognise that me having this gut is not only causing me problems in terms of increasing um, inflammatory markers in my body, which potentially leads to um, uh, blood vessel disorders, um, so heart disease, um, heart attacks and strokes. I'm also increasing my risk of having cancers. I'm increasing my risk of having erection problems. I'm increasing my risk of having diabetes. I'm having my risk of having testosterone deficiency, which begs the question, why have I managed to get so big? And that's because it's actually quite difficult to lose weight. You know, I 
I'm like Oprah. I've been on a diet since I was 12 years old. My mother once offered me £100 at 12. If I'd lose a stone, I took the money and ate my dinner. Um, so I mean, <laughs> it's actually quite difficult. And I recognise that struggle for people. However, if you've got testosterone deficiency, it's even more difficult to lose that weight. And therefore, it may be that if you have true testosterone deficiency and you're treated with testosterone, you will gain more muscle mass, which is more active and therefore will burn more calories in the background and shrink your waist size and improve your cholesterol. So on the point about this conversion, um, if you have a certain BMI, how does it really work that the testosterone that you have converts into estrogen? Like, what's going on there? So there is an enzyme, so a chemical basically in, in the fat cells that uh, converts testosterone to estrogen. Um, and then that estrogen is, so it's important in a man's body and not to say you shouldn't have any. And you know, there are men bodybuilders and um, uh, other people who are using um, aromatase blockers. So tamoxifen, etc., that you might use in, body, in, um, in women who have breast cancer because it blocks the estrogen. The problem with blocking estrogen is that in men that reduces their bone density. So actually taking estrogen blockers in men is not a great idea um, in the sense that you don't really want osteoporosis when you get older. So estrogen is really important in men. It also reduces slightly your heart, your heart disease risk, etc. I mean, women, women are very much protected until the menopause and after that their risk of heart disease rises because their, testosterone, sorry, their estrogen levels fall. But I guess it's just a question of you don't want too much of it if you're a man. Absolutely. because it, uh, the, the, And the issue is, as you said at the beginning, imbalance rather than actual levels sometimes. Yeah. So if your estrogen is high relatively to a testosterone, you may find your libido falls. You may also find that your sperm production changes. Mm. Um, and these can be issues, particularly if you've got men on the lower end of fertility who are taking potentially higher um, phytoestrogen compounds um, which you can find in certain foods it also apparently depends on i've been taught by monica our dietitian um, it also depends on the um, gut um, bacteria you have in some people whether they actually break it down to a much more potent form and that's apparently a third of the population um, will break it down to a much more potent form of estrogen which will then have a more biologically active version because the normal um, phytoestrogens, I mean, there are over 200 types in soy, for example, they're only mildly um, active in humans, so it probably won't make massive difference. But if you can activate it further, they will have more activity in you. Um, and the other thing is, if you are, have the right genes, they will also um, promote that conversion to a higher activity. So on that, the kind of environmental factors, so obviously you talked about phytoestrogens, but what about thinking about things like pesticides. So, you know, we know about the feminized frog study, which is when atrazine was in the water supply and basically turned male frogs into female frogs. And we also know about things like BPA and the effects on hormones there. So, I, I mean, perhaps again, it's a case that different people are sensitive in different ways, but what's your view about this? Because surely all these factors are also increasing in the world as well. I think it's always difficult to put your finger on one reason. So, for example, if I was, I was an infertile man, I'd want to know why. My problem is I may not know why because modern life has so, such a variety of different sources of estrogens. I mean, and, and whether they are the one that they are causing endocrine change in your body or hormonal change in the body, I don't know. Now, as, a, as, as myself... Do I want to reduce my exposure to plastics, pesticides, um, to uh, um, the non-stick coatings on certain pans? Uh, do I want to look at the diet I'm putting in my body? Am I drinking out of plastic bottles or am I drinking out of the metal containers um, with a sort of stainless steel lid? Um, those choices that I make, I'm actually now pushing forward and making those changes because I'm aware of it. My issue is that the 
some companies are much more environmentally friendly and much more body friendly than others and will make those changes within their packaging and within their sort of a, uh, uh, their cooking materials or surfaces automatically and they will say actually we're going to do it for everyone because it's good for your general health now that may um, cost a premium and actually in some ways I'm kind of all for that you're going well you are doing something that will generally benefit the food chain and us so okay that will cost a little bit more my issue is the access then for people who can't afford that so for me it would be that if you recognize that there is potential harm or change that is possible from components from wrappings or um, you know, cling film or whatever it's from then surely that should be attended to early on rather than it's sort of a downflow downstream being blocked because it's cheaper um, for the companies to produce it that way. Yeah, makes total sense. But I guess it all comes back to what you talked about before, which is awareness. And whilst we can't pinpoint, you know, X plus Y equals Z, yeah. if we're aware of these things, then you can help reduce your exposure. Now, obviously talking about, you know, modern things, and as you said, it's not just testosterone that we talk about when we talk about hormonal issues. Now, stress is very much a part of modern life. Um, and you know obviously overproduction of cortisol is becoming much more of an issue now obviously cholesterol you know is a base of production for kind of all of our hormones now how much do you think that having disproportionate amounts of cortisol can actually you know knock onto your other hormones including testosterone so my understanding this is actually quite limited when it comes to cortisol because we very rarely test it actually Doctors very rarely test it unless they're specifically um, uh, thinking of certain hormonal conditions um, which are related to cortisol itself. So, and because there's quite a wide normal range, one can't tell whether a high, so a cortisol that is in the normal level for you might be causing a high cholesterol versus a higher um, cortisol in me might actually not change my cholesterol level at all. Cholesterol is really important in terms of being the basis for loads of hormones as you've just said. However, for example, if you're on a statin, which reduces the body's production of, of, of cholesterol, it doesn't tend to drop your hormones. Okay, so people don't have to worry about, if I take my statin to protect my heart, does that mean I'm not going to produce my testosterone? No. It's only incredibly low levels where it's very um, significantly suppressed that you'll generally have an issue. And most people, that's not the case. So you don't think, though, that being incredibly stressed as a man in kind of modern times can have a knock-on effect? So forgetting the cholesterol part. So, so I, oh yeah, yes, I do think that being stressed absolutely changes the, the way your body feels. On a very basic level, if we look at ourselves in sort of evolutionary terms, if you are highly stressed, your brain tells your body you are not fit to reproduce. So similarly in women, for example, um, so young women gymnasts, they are often very lean and therefore they have a low, um, whilst they might have a, a good muscle mass and therefore their weight might be healthy, um, their, their fat level is, is relatively low, so the body fat percentage, which means their brain often switches off their periods because you're not actually almost fit, I use that inverted commas, to get pregnant because how would you um, survive with that level of body fat? So your, your body is stuck in some ways with the evolution that's brought you here. Um, and so your responses to stress are the same as response to a saber-toothed tiger, you know. And one of those issues is, you know, when you're confronted with a saber-toothed tiger, information goes down your spinal cord, adrenaline, which actually sucks your testicles into your body and makes your penis as small as a chicken nugget. I mean, the idea is to try and make it so small that the saber-toothed tiger is not going to rip it off with its claws. It's on purpose. <laughs> Clever. Yeah, very exactly. Clever. So it's very clever. The no problem is, <laughs> no. But for, example, you know, for example, now that everyone's obsessed with penis size, 
that that's not a great thing in terms of being a shower. So if you're slightly anxious when you go into the change rooms and you take your pants down and all of a sudden you've got a penis that looks like a chicken nugget, that will be of concern to you. You know, you're thinking, are other people looking at me? And it could simply be just because that sympathetic stimulation, because of the adrenaline, is telling your testicles and your penis, get out of there, disappear. So basically, next time you're comparing penis size, you want to be very relaxed before you do it. Exactly. And it's the same for sex. If you are stressed or anxious, it will mean that you're sending adrenaline and, and therefore information down your spinal cord, telling your testicles and penis, we've got no interest here. So all those people who are trying to have it all, and uh, don't get me wrong, I'd love for everyone to be able to have it all, but I think if you've got a busy day job, for example, or you know, busy, busy home, home life looking after kids, whatever, um, you, know, you get home, you're going to have dinner, you get home late, you want to have dinner, you might want to have a glass of wine or two, you want to spend some time with your kids, you might then spend some quality time with your partner, and then you know, at 11 o'clock after that, you want to try and have sex, dream on. Mm. You know, it's just not practical to do that day in, day out, and still feel able to do it. Now, some people will, and they'll be listening to this going, ridiculous, I'm fully capable, I'm full man, I can do it whenever I want to. And you're like, well, good for you, mate, really good for you. But actually, that's not the case for the majority. And as you get older, you don't get the 16-year-old direction where actually you've got to hide it behind a newspaper or whatever. So who, who reads a newspaper these days? No, your bag or whatever. Behind the iPad. <laughs> exactly. Or whatever. That's, no, that was completely normal then. You know, you're 40 or 30, 40, 50, and actually you will find that's not such a regular occurrence or doesn't happen anymore. That's not to say you're abnormal. That's just what happens over time. And weirdly, I guess it can become a vicious circle because you're trying to do all of this stuff. You're very stressed out. Then you become more stressed that you can't do what you want to do and you can't quote unquote be a proper man or whatever the ridiculous kind of yeah. connotations are about it and then it becomes a vicious circle. Of course, I mean erection equals man. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's because it's all about penetration and totally. that's, that's entirely another conversation. <laughs> but you know, there is this real sort of masculine ideal that penetration is the only sex that can happen and that's the measure of me as a man. Um, and it's, for me, hugely misguided because, you know, how much pleasure does that cut out then? You know, uh, and how many, there are many women that actually don't enjoy penetration at all. Mm. So what kind of sex would they like to have? And if you're only being taught by um, your friends, your peers, by social media, by um, porn, that actually penetrative sex and very harsh, vigorous penetrative sex, um, you know, where your penis is throwing away internal organs as it pile drives its way through, it's not the standard. It's not how we were designed. Um, it's also very uncomfortable often for women. Um, because women need to be vaginally lubricated, they need to have that um, pelvic floor sort of hovercraft develop um, because you know, the, the vulva of women, as I'm sure you know, um, is actually very similar to the shaft of the penis in the man. So it fills full of blood, as does the shaft of the penis, and provides sort of um, a, a cushion for men, if they are being very vigorous, to, 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 to pump against. And if that's not there because they're not aroused or they're in pain or that's just not their preferred method of sex, sex will be uncomfortable for them. Yeah. So there's a, sorry, there's a whole other conversation yeah, on painful we'll sex. Yeah, we'll have to come back to that. <laughs> but then coming back to, again, these kind of modern issues, and yeah. also we talked quite a bit about exercise. You talked about gymnasts and the effect that that has on their bodies. And you also talked about, you know, resistance training and what can happen with too much HIIT training. But I guess, you know, so exercise is something we're a lot more aware of, but it can, you know, doing too little can be as bad as doing too much, as you said. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And then also, you know, what is it about steroids use as well? Because that surely has an impact. If we start with the first bit then yeah. about too little exercise, mm -hmm. ideally you'd be doing 20 minutes of exercise per day. Now that 20 minutes, 
it depends what you're doing it for. So if you're doing it, um, so 20 minutes where you increase your heart rate to, and your breathing rate to the state where you couldn't sing. So that's a, yeah, I appreciate it. that changes as your exercise tolerance improves. Um, however, if you did it to that level, you are likely to improve your sugar control for 16 hours afterwards. So that's why we, and generally most people don't eat <laughs> in, in the eight hours of, of night time. So generally, if you did 20 minutes of exercise, which raises your heart rate and puts you out of puff, that is enough to improve your sugar control. And, and if you do that on a daily basis, that's exactly what we'd like. However, if you're slightly older and you want to maintain the muscle mass in your legs, because men lose that rapidly as they get older, and particularly because men are quite sedentary, often in sometimes in their jobs, but also often into later life, they become more sedentary. If you lose the muscle mass in your legs, that also increases your risk of falls, uh, also um, reduces your testosterone production. If you start off any gym work with a bit of legs, that will improve your testosterone production. Wow, mm. So it's a really, really important thing to be maximising lower body strength as opposed to all these men that seem to miss leg day and they're sort of like prawns. Chicken They've got legs. a massive upper body and then yeah. tiny little feelers for legs. <laughs> Sorry, feelers. little view. Brilliant. Yeah, vision for you. Um, okay, so that's, you know, the best way to do it. Now, coming back to what you were talking about before, so this with marathon runners, so that is again the kind of mechanism where the body's into survival mode. Is it's it? a high stress state. Yeah. You generally have very low body fat. Um, the brain is thinking, "Hang on." I mean, you know, running twenty, you know, running twenty six miles or forty two kilometers, however long it is, that is an extreme stress on the body. Um, I mean, it, and don't get me wrong, I'm amazed. You know, I, I ran a half marathon three years ago, and I thought, "Why did I do that?" I mean, it was, I was really proud of myself, but would I want to run for four and a half hours, five hours? I'm not going to say I was going to get, ever get a good time. Um, but that sounds like a recipe for me getting knee problems or, or getting hip problems. I think to all those people that do it, you know, kudos. But I, if you want to look at um, body function and long, body longevity, where your knees aren't blown, your hips aren't a problem, your back doesn't go out every year, because you know, most runners tend to have some sort of injury each year, um, then focusing on shorter periods of functional exercise where you're using body weights um, or you're using you know, light weights even um, that can really improve your general health. Focusing on your core, making sure you're eating a broad colour palette of foods, um, making sure that your job is hopefully nourishing to you in some ways, but if it's not and it just pays the bills, at least it's not so stressful that it causes you to have problems with your sleep. Because if your sleep is deprived, you're not going to produce your hormones properly. You're going to increase your cortisol levels, which fights against your insulin, which leads to worsen potential um, type 2 diabetes issues. Well, that's funny you mentioned sleep, because one of the things that we have looked at a lot, and I know there have been a number of studies, is the effect of a lack of sleep on men, and particularly on sperm, and as you say, around testosterone, but also anti-sperm antibodies as well have been shown to go up quite markedly. But I think that's also another mark of like modern life, is the fact that we're not always able to get as much sleep as we should. So how much do you think is the right kind of sleep? So that really varies in people. However, it seems to be somewhere between seven and eight and a half seems to be what most people are saying. There are these amazing people that seem to I mean, was it, um, amazing is probably the wrong word, but um, Marky Mark, what was his, what was his current, Mark Wahlberg, yeah. thank you, sorry, oh, back I in the day, yeah. where he gets up like three in the morning to yeah. do some exercise, and I'm going, that seems, I forgive me if you crazy, yeah. I mean, he's existing on three hours sleep a night, and I know there are these, um, uh, these ma major CEOs, um, that are getting up at sort of four o'clock in the morning, because how can you possibly actually be hard working if you don't get up at three or four a.m., and you're going, this is a 
dreadful example to set. You know, we know that your teenagers need more sleep. School should probably start at 10. It shouldn't really start at 8 because people, you know, teenagers aren't awake for that. It should start later in the day and perhaps end a bit later. Now, I appreciate that doesn't work with adult working timelines, but that's probably what should be happening. Um, sleep is so important for replenishing the body. For you know, it's, it's so important in lots of ways. One, for um, managing the stress of the day and the information that you've taken in and then promoting it to memory and then dealing with it in your dreams or however you're processing it, etc. Um, but it, as you said, it's so important in your hormonal balance uh, at uh, re-energizing yourself. Now, I've there's a couple of books that have come out recently about sleep, um, why we sleep, and uh, I can't quite remember the title. Um, but it's absolutely fascinating about how little we know about it since we meant to spend a third of our day doing it how little people invest in their beds oh i'll get the cheapest match and you're thinking but you spend a third of your life there unless obviously you're a ceo in which case you only spend mark Wahlberg. you're too busy in the gym or meditating to do differently but that's another thing actually meditating um how important that is for people's anxiety and life stress i worry that exposure to social media, exposure to 24-hour news cycles, to all the struggles that you are now seeing, obliterates the fact that actually we are probably in the most healthier than we ever have been in the world. We have less famine, less poverty. We are, in lots of ways, in a very positive space, but we only read the negative. Or we read things that tell us challenging stories about our own bodies. And in that space, we then feel negative. And I don't think that's necessarily a very good thing. If it then leads to you having bad health options, for example, drinking a detox tea, there's no such thing as a detox tea. Yeah, I, I have to say my big pet peeve is these really horrendously marketed quick fix products, which actually, if you just ate a balanced diet of whole foods, you'd be far better off. It's, Absolutely. There's a lot of companies out there who want to take advantage of this wellness craze, that's for sure. And everyone sees you know, women coming out after pregnancy and within three or four months they seem to have got back their body and you're thinking, how is that physically possible? I'm sick, Bill, I feel horrified for Kate Middleton, well, not Middleton now, sorry, Kate Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, she, 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 she's paraded out you know, just having delivered. I mean, her underwear must be stuffed full of yeah, pads. I, I find it horrifying. <laughs> Um, but, you know, that's obviously my personal opinion. And you know, perhaps it's necessary uh, in terms of a cultural perspective for people to see a, the healthy mother of the child. I don't know. For me, it just sounds like you know, you're doing it for the media's sake or for people feeling ownership of that person and their child. Um, it just seems... I was wheeled out in a bad tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> if she was in her juicy couture velour, I, I would I would find that hilarious. You know I mean, if she was just in a gown you know, with her two fingers up to the world going, get out of here... You know, I need to pee. Mm-hmm. I would be much more accepting it's much of more that. Real, yeah, yeah of course. That's the thing about modern life. It's the kind of images that we're presented with constantly just aren't realistic, and that's always what we're trying to get to. And it's just this impossible ideal, this impossible. Goal. And, and you have you know multiple media stars filming their births these days and putting that out. And actually, I've been at several births where you know the, the woman poos themselves. You're like going. This is not glamour, just I mean. I mean, unless you've been fully prepared beforehand, this seems like a very bad idea. You know, why would you do that? Absolutely. And I think this is just one of the bigger issues about, you know, stress and modern life, not prioritising sleep, you know, this constant image of perfection. And it affects guys as well. And to your point on sleep, there was a really interesting book um, written by Ariane Huffington called Sleep Revolution. But... 
I think one of the points is that it's interesting, the body is very clever in its evolution over many, many hundreds of years, but actually the one thing that's never changed is our need to sleep, and there must be a reason why that is. Absolutely, it's so important for all your systems. I mean, there was a recent thing in the news about um, Netflix wanting to challenge our need to sleep, and actually the raison d'etre for Netflix is to eat into that time where we're not watching. And you go, that is extraordinary. It's so wrong, so wrong on so many levels. So um, now, what happens if you go, you, you feel a lot of these symptoms, you go to your doctor and you do in fact have a hormonal imbalance or specifically an issue with testosterone? What would be the course of treatment? Just so if a person is listening and they're concerned, what would they expect to happen following that? So have a conversation with your doctor. Do be aware that some doctors are more au fait with testosterone than others. Um, weirdly, men's health tends to focus on the prostate. It doesn't tend to focus very much on the testicles. So fertility, for example, is you know, we're undereducated um, in, I think, I believe, um, and testosterone. You know, they're two major things your testicles do, and actually we don't do much of it in our training. So you might have to find, you know, to speak to a doctor, you might have to bring some information. And I appreciate it does feel like an effort and a challenge. I mean, just be generous about it. You know, think actually this person may not have been fully educated in that because that's not necessarily the, the first life-saving treatment or thought that may come into their head. Um, but if we go beyond that and say, actually, you know, you're deserving of treatment and you're deserving of care, um, if you find that actually there is some... Uh, challenge to you potentially having a blood test just find a different doctor you know you can choose to see a different doctor that's not a problem if you're having several people say this is not appropriate then you potentially have to look at what you're putting out there and are the questions you're putting out the ones that are going to get you that answer um, so you have your say you have your test and it comes back as low um, there are there are issues with that because different laboratories measure at different levels so what might be low for one laboratory may not be for another and what might be low for one areas, um, so the guidance you're given from uh, for locally um, by the uh, doctors in the area about endocrinology or about um, the men's health might be that one level um, is considered low there, for example, uh, eight, but it might be seven in another area, which means you go from being normal in one area, but you move postcode and you're actually low. And that is somewhat problematic, which is why we rely on the British Society of Sexual Medicine guidance, which is fully available um, on the BSSM um, website. We'll so put you... those on the show notes. Perfect. Um, just because that gives you an idea of what the recommendations are from BSSM. And I'm, I'm a, one of the committee members. So um, it just means that you are given a very clear plan of what results are appropriate and what are not appropriate, what levels you might get treatment at, what you might not get treatment at, just so you feel comfortable that... If you do have a low normal, why they might say no. Now, is it also not the case that testosterone has its own circadian rhythm? So if you test it in the morning, it's going to be at a different level than if you test in the evening. Perfect. So basically, if you do it within three hours of waking, that's your peak time. Because this, it's also an issue if you're a, sleep, um, you're a shift worker. So if you're working overnight, you need to do it within three hours of waking. You, normally, we normally suggest patients do it between 8 and 10 a.m. Um, so to get the testosterone checked, try not to have drunk too much in the three days or anything if you can in three days preceding. Try not to have masturbated or had sex. Um, just we don't want to do anything that can reduce your testosterone um, um, unfairly. Um, and you can eat or not eat depending on what you would normally do that morning. Have your blood test taken and then you go for a review. They may not just do your testosterone. They may do something called your sex hormone binding globulin, which circulates in your blood and basically grabs hold of your testosterone and means your body can't use it. 
So you may have a normal total testosterone, but actually if there's loads of SHBG floating around, you can't use any of it. So often what will be calculated and what we're trying to teach doctors out there to, to check is not just the total, but your free testosterone as well. And there are calculators available online. Um, there's an app called TCalc. Um, there's you know, various things that you can do. Um, there's an app on the, uh, sorry, there's a link on the pctag.uk website that allows you to calculate it as well. So they're, they're fully available and free um, for use. If you calculate free testosterone or your total testosterone and they're low, I would repeat it again four weeks later. Just make sure it wasn't a once-off, because if you are going on testosterone treatment, it may be for life. So you really want to make sure that if you're going to be giving yourself a treatment that potentially has long-term effects, but also could potentially have side effects, you're genuinely low. Yeah, makes sense. Now, say, for example, I came to you as a guy and I had two low readings, then what would be the treatment? Depends what time of life you are. So, for example, if you want to keep your fertility or not. And that's a really big question. So if you want to keep your fertility, if we give you testosterone, up to two thirds of men become infertile on testosterone therapy. And why is that? That's because you are giving external testosterone. So your testosterone levels in the blood rise. Your brain detects that testosterone levels being high. So it switches off the two hormones that are responsible for stimulating the testicles. One is luteinizing hormone, which stimulates in a man the testicles to make more testosterone. So you'd expect that to fall if there's loads of testosterone in the body. The second one, however, is FSH, which in a woman, was a woman, makes you make eggs, release eggs from the ovary. In men, it makes you make sperm. So if you've got high testosterone levels coming from external um, location, it will tell your brain to stop making follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, which means your testicles get turned off in terms of sperm production how clever the body is at regulating absolutely it? and it wants to keep it within a fine balance mm. because too high can be problematic as can low yeah so if you're a guy and you want to keep your fertility what do you then do so there are two main options um clomiphene which is used in some women to stimulate fertility um, that's what, because particularly if they're going an egg harvest or something like that that'll sort of uh, stimulates the um it stimulates the body at the sort of brain level um, to produce more FSH and LH. So then that goes to the testicles, telling the testicles, make sperm, make more testosterone. So you get a secondary rise in your testosterone as a result of that, rather than just giving them the testosterone directly. But it preserves your fertility. Great. And oh, you said sorry. there was a second thing? The second one. So some people advocate HCG, so human chorionic um, gonadotrophin, um, if I can say that properly. Um, HCG, so if that is given a lot, um, either on its own or alongside testosterone, that tends to keep up the levels of testosterone within the testicle itself. It maintains it there, so actually that still keeps your intratesticular testosterone up, which maintains fertility because it keeps stimulating your, um, uh, your sperm centres. Okay, great. So it seems like there are some decent solutions um, if you do have a problem. There are. The only caveat is, and I have to make that clear, is we don't really have massive long-term data on HCG and plus testosterone or clomiphene. So th and there's much more so evidence on testosterone itself. if you are trying to preserve your fertility. So some people that. also go and save their sperm and decide because there's not so much evidence behind it. In terms of long-term usage, we don't really know what... 20 years of clomiphene treatment looks like we don't know what 20 years of hcg plus testosterone looks like in men we hope it's nothing but we don't know because they affect more than one hormone which affects more than one body target yeah so okay well then wrapping it all up so if as a guy 
I wanted to just think, right, I just need to keep my hormones as balanced as possible. I want to be as healthy as possible. What would be your kind of five bits of advice? doesn't have to be just five bits. <laughs> you're on the spot there. Well, let's what would go... be your main bits of advice then? So 20 to 30 minutes of resistance exercise every day. You're not trying to destroy yourself, but you're just trying to keep your body in a trim state. Uh, keep your waist under 100 centimetres if you can. Drink and smoke as little as you possibly can. I mean, ideally, never smoke. I would know, never advocate that. But drink as little or as moderately as you can. Um, eat a broad, varying diet. Sleep, I guess. Sleep super well. And look at the work-life balance you have. Because if you are, even though you might be energised by work, if you're exhausted by it at the same time, that's probably not good in terms of life being a marathon rather than a sprint. Mm -hmm. You know, you're potentially likely to be increasing. So our life expectancy is potentially going to go from 80 to 90 years, potentially over the next 20 years or so. And you're thinking, at 90, how do you want to be? Mm -hmm. You're not thinking now how I want to be at 25 or 30. Yeah, because that's another big question, which is a whole other topic, is that we're living longer, but are we living better? That's the other question. Exactly right. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure. Such a huge amount of information. So I'll put some of the things that you mentioned on the podcast in the show notes if people sure. want to tap into the resource and also your details, perhaps, if people have questions. Thank you so My much pleasure. for your time. Can I just do one thing? So it's yes. just about the testosterone itself, so I didn't yes. mention that. Is that okay? Just quickly yes, to add. Yes, yes. Um, so obviously, if you've decided that you don't particularly concerned about your fertility, so lots of men aren't, then you would be given testosterone itself, which can be given in lots of different formulations. Mostly in this country, we use either a gel, which you apply on your upper arm or chest or the inside of your thigh, depending on the, the make, and you do that every day. Um, and that dries very quickly. You can put your T-shirt or shorts on and you're good. Obviously, you try not to hug um, young young bodies because you might be transferring. So we suggest you're fully clothed and don't go swimming for several hours afterwards or have a shower because you want to keep it on your body. That tends to work incredibly well and maintain your testosterone levels. And you're looking to notice an improvement in probably within two months. It's not a pill, a magic pill that solves everything. Generally, mood and, and focus improves most quickly. However, it takes a longer time for your body muscle mass and your bone density to improve. The other option is an injection. Um, there is an injection you could be given that lasts three months. So for those people, for example, who travel a lot and don't want to be carrying lots of sachets around, um, or for example, who are traveling to countries where um, the testosterone is considered a controlled drug, you know, that, it, that's a much more convenient option in between um, being tested. Okay, brilliant. Well, that is super, super helpful. So any guys listening want to know more, we'll put Dr. Anand's details up. Um, and for anything else, of course, um, contact us via the website, betterbabies.com and uh, tune in for more next week.